There must follow, if the soul is to make progress, a gradual reclothing of her with the graces in which Christ desires to see her. She has put off the old man. She must now put on the new. Welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your seasonal Catholic podcast on evangelization and discipleship. I'm Mike Gomer-Gormley, and I'm here to walk you through the essentials of what it means to follow Christ as a Catholic disciple. Let's begin. Before we dive into the show, I'm going to give you another little announcement. I am leaving parish ministry. Actually, today, May 8th, when I'm recording this, is my last day doing parish ministry 17 years full-time. It's crazy. But now I'm going on to pursue a career of doing parish missions, writing, podcasting, as well as doing trainings and events and catechists, whatevers. So if you would like to hire me, reach out gomer at layevangelist.com, or you can go to the website layevangelist.com, a website seen by dozens, in order to start a conversation. I'm also going to go work for Paradisius Day, helping out there, That Man Is You Men's Ministry. So if you're looking to do uh, get involved in any of that stuff, get started, get a man's ministry started, uh, I'm all about it, and I am here to help you. All right, moving along. Last week, we talked about the purgative way in our relationship with Christ. And I love talking about this because Robert Hugh Benson, remember he's a early convert to Catholicism from the Anglican church. His father was the former Archbishop of Canterbury. And I think he converted around 1904. Maybe he wrote a wonderful book called the friendship of Christ. And when he talks about in the friendship of Christ, uh, is this taking Catholic principles of the spiritual writers for literally 2000 years and distilling them around this concept of friendship with Christ and discipleship. And so what I wanted to do last week was talk about how so many people abandon their walk with Christ because they become disillusioned. But if you have this bigger, wider Catholic understanding of the purgative way, these disillusionments have been talked about for centuries and are a normal part of a Catholic growing in their discipleship with Christ. So what is the purgative way? Well, Christ strips away all from the soul that are not of him, even his gifts, his adornments, all of that stuff. The soul passes through what Robert Hugh Benson wants to point out is three principal stages or disillusionments in order to fully strip the soul of uh, whatever falsehoods we might have with our relationship with Christ. So first is this disillusionment with external things. You could call it the human side of the church. We can talk about this and and understand this from the perspective of like, you know, you see bad priests or you hear about scandal or you encounter terribly divided congregations and gossip and blah, blah, blah. And this shocks the soul, especially the soul who was on fire for Christ, right? These converts who everything seemed new and sweet and beautiful in Christ Jesus. Well, then the second disillusionment, the soul doesn't abandon the faith is with internal things. So we go from external to internal, especially one's own misconceptions of grace, of who Christ is, what it means to be in relationship to him, of prayer, right? Prayer feels monotonous instead of familiar. And then we go on to the third stage or the third disillusionment, which is with the self. This is where we clearly see our own unworthiness. And here the soul, if it's not strong, will fall into despair Or will just resign itself into being a cynical Christian. And this is horrific. But if it just progresses forward, that we can see our own unworthiness so that we may cast ourselves wholly upon Christ. 
So this week's question, we want to understand how does Christ then restore within us this radical newness of life that we first sensed at our conversion? Joining me as we take this famous Anglican convert to Catholicism, Robert E. Benson, and his amazing book, The Friendship with Christ, Exploring the Humanity of Jesus, in order to better understand what it looks like in our relationship with Christ and his disciples. Using the spiritual theology of the church, we're going to turn from the purgative way to the next step, which is called the illuminative way, where the soul, once stripped of her false garments, is now dressed anew in the wedding garment of the bride of Christ. So part one, external things. So the first step of the illuminative way then may be said to lie in a paradox. And this part I found so absolutely fascinating in the instruction, which the soul receives as it regards their value in the purgative way, the soul learns that external things cannot in themselves bear her weight, that they are worth nothing. But in the illuminative way, she learns how to use them rightly, that they are worth a great deal. What the heck does that mean? Number one. Think about that person that you, when you first really gave your heart over to Christ, they annoyed the heck out of you. Maybe they were wildly inappropriate in their comments just to egg you on. Maybe they just had an annoying temperament or, you know, whatever it might be. These people who annoyed us, right? We, we realize like, oh, I can't stand to be around them. I have to separate myself from them because they annoy me so, so very much. And I don't want that they're like an occasion of sin to me for others, you know, the, in this stage, the in the purgative way, we find that we have temptations or places that we go that might lead us to grave sin or whatever it might be. All of a sudden, in the illuminative way, these untiring temptations, these occasions of sin, these annoying people, we now see them in a new light because the soul has cast itself upon Christ that now these things are no longer like, oh no, I need to run from them. The Lord gives us light to see the real value in these external things in these people, in these situations, in whatever. And now we realize that there are some virtues that I can never attain, some victory over sin that I can never have without this contention. But once we're illuminated with the gift of Christ and we can see their value, we're like, oh, oh, I get it now. I can't be patient and actually acquire the virtue of patience unless I'm surrounded with this one person all the time at work who annoys the heck out of me, right? It's actually by striving to love this person and be present to this person and tolerate this person that I actually become patient. And this is the whole point of St. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Many of you probably know this verse, right? Where Jesus is revealing to St. Paul, he says, for my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That weakness is Paul's, not Christ's. His grace, his power makes, is, is perfect, is made perfect precisely in the weaknesses of Paul. Because it's right here in this conflict between my weakness and Christ's power that divine grace becomes most effective because now we're surrendering. We've given up that self-reliance lie. We all struggle at every stage in spiritual life. We all struggle with things. We all struggle with people. We all struggle with temptations, but the illuminative way, the illuminative coming from the Latin for lumen light, right? Is that we perceive their value intellectually, interiorly, right? We perceive it to the point where it almost becomes impossible for the soul in this stage, Benson says, to resent or rebel against these things, these external things. The soul accepts them and uses them as God wills, right? And I like this because this, this last quote for this stage, Benson ties it to suffering. And I like it because we had a whole episode on suffering, which is probably the most popular episode that we've done in this new season. But in this, 
This is what he says. He says, the soul is no longer bewildered by pain and the problem of pain, right? But to me and my own struggles with God and following Christ and all that stuff is why do bad things happen to good people? Why do innocents suffer? Why do, you know, why, where does all this evil and suffering and pain come from? And for many people, their faith ends when the pain begins, the suffering begins. But this is the phrase that he says. He says, the soul is no longer bewildered by the problem of pain. And even if they can't intellectually solve it, it answers it in the only way which is possible, by grasping pain or at any rate acquiescing in it. That's exactly what we talked about with the venerable Archbishop Fulton Sheen of the two rebels on the cross. The souls in the purgative way, what are they doing? Well, many of them are like the bad thief. That's just all he wants is Christ to intervene to take him off the cross. Whereas the good thief is resigned. He has acquiesced in the pain, in the suffering. He has grasped it and said, we receive the punishment that we deserve. But Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Okay, so first step in the illuminative way corresponds to the first step in the purgative way, dealing with external things. Now we're moving on to the next part, which is the internal things. The second step of the illuminative way corresponds to the purgative in that the light that we've gained from God as to the reality of these interior things, such as the truth of religion. And I know for many of you, this is the thing that really drove your Christian faith. So, okay, let me explain what I mean. So in the first step of, of our faith, like when we're at the very beginning, says that initial moment of conversion, things are beautiful. You're thinking of Christ all the time. We kind of went through this, like you got that conversion energy. You know, people always joke, you should lock a convert in a, in a basement for like six months until they get it out of their system. But it's this idea that everything is new and the newness is greatness and Christ is your friend. But then the purgative stage comes and it begins to strip you away of what you thought was Christ what you thought was grace, what you, what you thought was this radical newness, but in fact, it was the gifts of Christ, but it wasn't Christ himself. So he wants you to consummate your faith with him in perfect love, in unitive love. And so he begins to pull back the gifts and say, do you still love the giver? Do you still love the giver? Part of this initial step in faith is seeing the enormous number of dogmas that we hold, Right. Like theology of the body for a lot of people, that was like a conversion moment. They hear this and they're like, oh, this is, this unites the cross with the creed, with the resurrection, with sexuality, with Adam and Eve in the garden and, and all of these things that kind of go through everything. Yes, this all makes, this, this is fascinating. It all makes sense. But, you know, the soul, you know, they go through RCIA, they have a large number, a body of doctrine to believe all these teachings. The difference is we don't have an interior experience of it. This is how Benson says. He says, we receive it as faith like a child without true understanding. We might know even the definitions of doctrines. You and I might be able to engage in apologetics, but we don't have that glimmer of light within us, right? We hold the dogmas of faith, but we can't compare them to, in any sense to natural facts or see those uh, numerous points where they fit together into our own experience. But when illumination comes, the mysteries don't cease to be mysteries. But now there begins to shine in her spiritual sense, point after point, those jewels of truth, which now have been opened up to her. There's no longer this impenetrable darkness when you hear about the Trinity, right? Or the hypostatic union. All of a sudden, these things take on the light that they were always meant to have. The soul finds those things that were always true in themselves to now be true to her. The soul which has walked in the security of Christian teaching, but walked in darkness at one point, now begins to see. 
now begins to understand and perceive within her soul like, oh, this is why hell is real. Oh, this is why Christ died on the cross. This is why suffering is real. This stage enables you to begin to perceive these interior things, especially the truths of the faith as true and I'm going to use this phrase that might trigger some of you as true for me. That is as true within me, within my life, within my soul, that finally the church's teaching and my experience are becoming one. And at that moment, the soul then progresses to the next stage right now. Remember in the purgative way, we talked about exterior things, then interior things, and then the self. And now we move on to the third stage of illumination that corresponds to that purgative way. And it deals with those actual relations between Christ and the soul that are involved in the divine friendship, right? Now, the last step of the purgative way was the abandonment of the soul into Christ's arms once self-reliance has been given up. Now, in the corresponding illuminative way, there is the accession of light, which the soul receives as the abiding presence of Christ within her, or rather of her abiding presence within Christ. Now, this is so fascinating to me because I have seen this so much in the lives of the saints, when you begin to read their lives, you're like, yes, yes, this is the stage that I, I long to be a part of, right? So it's like, I, I get it. You have to let go of Christ, the purgative stage, so that Christ can then hold on to you. Okay, that's the end game of the purgative stage. It's not about me and my control. It's me relinquishing control so that Christ can embrace me. And that comes through many, many sacrifices, the strippings, the purgations, but in this illuminative stage, it reworks, it makes all of those past lives untrue and undoes the evil of the past. And the more illumination your soul receives, this interior light of divine grace, the more you are able to walk these previous paths. But just like I had to say, oh no, my self-reliance, right? That's what actually has corrupted me. That's what actually led me away from God. Whether you're talking about Adam and Eve in the garden or every decision that I've ever made that I have to then go to confession for now in the illuminative stage, this is where divine friendship quickens into the abiding presence of Christ or the abiding presence within Christ. Divine friendship becomes an actual object of your intelligence and your contemplation. Jesus is not just enjoyed like maybe he was in the earlier stages, but now He's perceived and understood within your soul. This is what the spiritual writers call ordinary contemplation. Now, this is to be contrasted with extraordinary contemplation. This is one of my problems with the lives of the saints, uh, especially people like St. Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross and all these great mystics that we have in the life of the church. They enjoyed what we call extraordinary contemplation. I think that most saints in the church never had any of these miraculous manifestations, levitations, all this stuff. Many of them, I mean, sometimes these things are very much uh, in, <laughs> they very much accompany an extreme uh, faith. The, the third stage after the illuminative way is called the unitive way. And that's often where these miraculous manifestations occur, but that's extraordinary. And Benson goes on to say, it is not right for you and I to pray for these extraordinary things. What we pray for is union with our Lord, because what happens is if we want these things, sometimes we can want them too much and we lose that healthy sense of self-distrust and we, we, <laughs> we try to fake it or we desperately, we think we are ranked higher and more progressive in the spiritual life than we actually are. Okay. So what we want is ordinary contemplation. What is that? We should all pray and strive for ordinary contemplation. This is that moment 
of union with Christ. It is in the reach of all ordinary graces that every Christian should have and should be cooperating with. What is it? It is consciousness of God, that God is never wholly absent from your thoughts, even your subconscious thoughts, especially your subconscious. When first initiated into this friendship with Christ, we have these, what Benson calls these extreme, this extreme intensity of our relationship with Christ. And he calls it fitful though. He says this extreme though fitful intensity. Ordinary contemplation then is the fixing of this state by effort as well as by grace. This is where your will and Christ's will come together perfectly in this notion of the abiding presence of Christ within you and you within Christ. Until your soul has been purged of that which is not of Christ, then illuminated to first the exterior, then the interior things and their proper value, the consciousness of Christ's interior presence cannot be this continuous experience. When taking place, the soul is trained for the life of friendship with Christ, right? So the purgative stage and the illuminative stages up till this point are required. They are like the training ground of Christian discipleship, right? I use this analogy all the time with exercise. Don't exercise, train. Training has a purpose. Exercise, yeah, I'm going to go to the gym and sweat and do some stuff, get my heart rate up, and then I'm done. But training has a goal, and with a goal comes intensity, and with intensity comes focus. And so what ends up happening is that Christ is training you for the life of friendship with him, of divine companionship that will be perfectly fulfilled in heaven forever. And ordinary contemplation, what is that? Well, if Christ is the lover of your soul, the friend of your soul, then ordinary contemplation, this contemplative prayer, is the attention, Benson says, that the soul gives to Christ. This is you paying attention to God. This is the stage of listening and not just talking his ear off. But here's the danger, though. Sin becomes far more grave, subjectively speaking, meaning small, uh, merely material sins can easily cross that threshold into formal sins that you need to go to confession for, which maybe in the past you probably didn't need to. Why? Because now you have this interior light. Now you have this consciousness of God's presence within you. Now you've tasted the goodness and the richness of ordinary contemplation, and it's beautiful. But virtue, not only do sins become more grave, virtues become easier to practice. So we need to understand that this is the high gift, right? To whom much is given, much is required. So Benson concludes this section by saying, for it is difficult for any soul to sin very outrageously so long as she feels the pressure of Christ's hand in hers. When I first read that line, I thought it was going to say Christ's hand upon you, right? Like, like on your shoulder, like, Hey, you're sinning, pushing you down. But it's like, Nope, Nope. It's the companionship notion. Okay. So we're going to take a quick break and it's going to be interesting because what I want to do, this part stopped me in my tracks when I was going through it. This final section to close out this part of Benson's understanding of intimacy with Christ through the percative and illuminative way. He said, so what is the danger, the absolute danger of failing in the illuminative way? So we're going we're gonna to talk about that when we get back from the break. But first, we're going to hear a quick message from Ascension, the sponsors of this mighty fine podcast. Uh, and, and I want you to make sure you do me a favor. 
please reach out and ask a question, maybe about the series, something else we've covered in the past. Email us at eksb at ascensionpress.com. We might read your question, your fancy question aloud on the show. It's, it's kind of awkward because it's now May and we've been <laughs> receiving questions since basically February, March time. And so what we want to do is get as many questions as possible and have uh, some special people come on the show to help answer. I can think of at least one person that would be awesome to have on this show and help me answer. But, 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 but that's, that's later. That's later. So let's go to a quick break and we'll be right back. Okay. Here's the gut check right here, because if nothing changes, nothing changes. Do you want to be holy? And do you want to be an instrument of renewal in this world? And if so, do you believe it's possible? Do you know what it looks like? Do you know where to begin? Because if nothing changes, nothing changes. My name is Father Mark Mary. I'm a Franciscan friar of the renewal. And I wrote a book called Habits for Holiness. And it pulls from over 800 years of Franciscan tradition, wisdom, and experience of radical and total discipleship in the midst of the world, but in a way which begins with little steps and works not only for religion, not only for priests, but for everybody. The change you desire is possible. The conversion you desire is possible. The renewal you desire is possible. The healing you desire is possible. And it begins with little steps. So to guide you on your way and to help you make the next best step of renewal in your life, I'd invite you to pick up a copy of my book, Habits for Holiness. God bless you. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to EKSB, Every Knee Shall Bow. We're talking about the illuminative way in our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And here is the fascinating thing. What is the danger? I mean, think about this. The soul is interiorly illumined by the grace of Jesus Christ and has achieved this, what we can call a consciousness of God dwelling within our soul, of us dwelling within Christ. He becomes an object of our own perception. This is what true contemplative prayer is all about. But there's a fourth part. There's a fourth part, which is on the supreme danger to the illuminative life, or rather what the illuminated soul can fall into. Now, this, this is from Benson. Every stage has its own dangers since every advancement higher towards God increases the depths of the gulf into which we can fall. Okay. So every single stage has its own and the purgative way we went through a lot of those, but the illuminative way gives us what the soul has wanted from the very beginning of her conversion consummation with Christ in his love. That's the whole point this is what we call the state of union of the soul with Christ in ordinary contemplation. And yet there is a danger. This soul so illuminated can fall into the supreme danger of individualism. Yeah, I when I was reading this, I was not expecting him to say individualism. I'm thinking like, what, like, like modernist individualism? <laughs> like, I don't understand how this is a thing for, for these heightened spiritual masters. And this is how he says, he says, individualism is the case, in this case, is the reality that the soul has advanced beyond the temptations of ordinary pride, like your simple arrogance and simple vanity. But now, has entered into a zone where it is possible for that far deeper, far subtler satanic form of what we call spiritual pride. It's not just possible, it's encountered. It's the number one enemy. And then this spiritual pride, Benson points out, brings along with it the emotional and intellectual pride. All the other forms of pride start to come and seep into the soul at this stage. And he's like, what? what? What are you talking about? Well, here, here's his point. Every heretic and sect that ripped apart the body of Christ, the church, 
has taken a rise from primarily from those who are illuminated, those who have received this higher form of, of grace. It is the close friends of Christ that are the chief heretics in history. Such heretics, Benson says, enjoyed a high degree of interior knowledge, or else, Benson says, they could have led none of Christ's simple friends astray. So all those in that initial stage of friendship with Christ and those maybe at different places in the purgative stage, so many of them can be led astray by those in the illuminated stage. So how do we get rid of this? How do we fight this horrible individualism that can, the, the satanic spiritual pride that can destroy the church, that can destroy people in the church? What's the solution so it doesn't end in my destruction or in your destruction? Well, God gave us a most beautiful help. Coupled with this increase in interior spiritual life, there must be, okay, this is so important. And right when I say this, you're going to be like, oh yeah. And you can think of a whole bunch of historical figures where this absolutely applies. Coupled with this increase in the interior spiritual life, there must be the devotion towards and submission to the exterior voice of which God speaks in his church, AKA the authority of the church. Why? Because nothing, and I know this from uh, lay people who have started movements like, let's say you have intellectual Catholics that have YouTube and Twitter accounts and all this stuff, and all they do, and, and they might be super spiritually advanced in a lot of ways and have a huge amount of comprehensive knowledge of theology and catechetics, and they sit there, and you can see this individualism, this elevation of self, this reliance upon interior experiences of these elements. But what happens is this phrase from Benson that I have seen played out, charismatic circles, intellectual circles, traditionalist circles, over and over again, nothing is so difficult to discern as the differences between the inspirations of the Holy Ghost and the aspirations or imaginations of the self, right? I had a buddy who went on a 30-day silent retreat. And I said, what did you learn? What's the number one lesson you took away? And he said, without skipping a beat, I can now distinguish three voices that of God's, that of my own, and that of the devil's. And I said, whoa, what does that mean? And he said, well, in the past, I would say, this is from God, and it was from me. In the past, I've said, this is from me, and it was from the devil. In the past, I said, this, this is from the devil, and it was actually from God, because there were things that I didn't want to do or things I wanted to do but knew not whether or not God wanted to. Of course, this is the Lord's will. Right? Nothing is so difficult to discern as the differences between the inspirations of the Holy Ghost and the aspirations or imaginations of the self. And this is why Protestantism and Robert Hugh Benson, remember, he's no hater of Protestants. He was one. His father was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he converted. He says this is why Protestantism, with all of its gospel zeal, continuously subdivides its energies because it recognizes no such exterior voice that tests their experiences. There are many denominations that are framed around this whole notion of, I read the Bible for myself and the infallible, inerrant word of God speaks to me. I interpret it. And if you disagree, then, then how do we resolve it? How do we resolve it? There are people with, within the charismatic movements of Protestantism reading the same Bible end up adopting entirely contrary ways of life because they feel like the spirit is leading them here or there. 
And one thinks, of course, of Martin Luther. I read a couple biographies of Martin Luther in the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And uh, one of them talked about, you know, all of these things. Like He has all of these church members saying, like, no, you can't do this. You can't say this. You can't teach this. This is wrong. And he's like, well, here I stand. I can do no further. It is not heresy, and I will not repent. And then uh, as he so like, okay, so maybe he's right and everyone else is wrong. The Pope is corrupt. You can. Oh, yeah, totally the Pope's fault. But then he's like, at least we have the councils and then the councils can. Well, at least we have this. Well, then, you know, well, okay, the councils can air everything. Okay, it's fine. Everything can air except my interpretation of sacred scripture. There's a famous line that uh, someone was opposing him in the Protestant world, another Protestant uh, teacher and was opposing him. And he said, uh, you know, what shall we say to this guy who's putting you on blast out there? And Luther said, tell him that Luther said it, right? So here we have this radical individualism, this understanding of my uh, my pride, this satanic form of pride, then bring in intellectual pride and emotional pride. But Catholics, Catholics can fall into this, this as well. To imagine that the exterior must be avoided by the interior, right? I know in my heart, we talked about this very early on through Frank Sheed's What Difference Does Jesus Make and To Know Christ Jesus books, right? People say too often, well, in my own heart, like, I don't think Jesus would do that. I don't think Jesus would say that. I don't think Jesus would act like that. That's just the church. And we divide Christ and his body. We divide the bridegroom from the bride. And this is what we say. He says, to imagine that the exterior must be avoided by the interior and that they are better able to interpret the church than is the church to interpret herself. And he adds, woe to him that is alone. Woe to him who believes that he enjoys an interpretation and infallibility, which he denies to Christ's outwardly commissioned vicar. The stronger the interior life, the more strong the hand of the church is needed. The higher and the higher ought the soul's appreciation of her office. So let me say that again. You and I, when you read the lives of the saints, sometimes we over glamorize all the mystical stuff, the miraculous manifestation stuff. And I think some reason why we do that is to avoid actually following in their footsteps to actually putting in the work of purgation and illumination. But here's the deal. We also encounter in the lives of her most authentic saints, huge obstacles that the church herself erects in their lives. Like I think of Padre Pio being stripped of his ability to say mass. His whole life was the mass. If you don't believe me, watch Shia LaBeouf being interviewed by Bishop Barron uh, when he was interviewed by him. And he talks about the mass in Padre Pio's life was everything, right? It was everything. And then that was publicly taken from him. Why? Why do you find the church being the main obstacle in so many lives of the saints? Because the church also knows And Christ also knows, using his exterior voice in these people's lives, that spiritual pride can only be resolved in our devotion to the external voice of God in the world. Remember, it is from the intimates of Christ's inner circle, from those who he shared his secrets with, that the Judases of history are drawn. All right, y'all. Ooh, that's a shocking conclusion, right? Supreme danger of the illuminative stage is this rampant individualism. As we now move to conclude this season of EKSB, we will summarize in the next show the discipleship essentials that we walk through. And we're going to talk about the first and greatest disciple of Christ, which is very appropriate in this month of May. Uh, we're going to talk about that because we want to show how the first and greatest disciple embodies all of these aspects of Christian discipleship. Until then, God bless. God bless.